This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi guys, Theta here again. Episode 3 of the summer 2017 season, talking about episode 3 of Made in Abyss. Today we have six scenes to go through, in addition to our normal sort of five-point breakdown with a little speculation. I mentioned last time we would talk about the ending credits in this episode, but they don't actually show up in this episode, so we're going to bag that. We'll do it in the next one. Today's episode is a little less on plot, a little more on character, so we're going to try to move through it a little more quickly than we have in the past. Let's go. sort of up late having a conference in one of their bedrooms, and they're discussing the fact that Rico has decided to just go ahead and go into the abyss. Now, while her goal from the beginning has been to go into the abyss, it's always been after gaining the rank of White Whistle, or at least while working her way up to that, originally in pursuit of catching up to what her mother did, but now in pursuit of actually catching up to her mother. So she believes. The letter and whistle of Liza coming up, in addition to the story Leader told her in the last episode, have changed her long-term plans into very short-term plans. She's gonna go sooner rather than later, ready or not. This entire episode then becomes the realization of that huge step forward in this goal. Um, there's no advancement or change in conflicts for this scene, though we do have the beginnings of a little personal conflict between Rico and Nato. It's really the first emotional outburst we've seen from Nato at all. While I pegged him before as sort of the straight man, sort of the rational one, and while it is sort of the place from which his emotion comes, it's a little bit of a surprise compared to how sedate he's been to this point. Now this is sort of the beginning of this conflict that lasts just in this episode, where Rico's desire to go and Nato's desire for her to stay come at odds. We get our first taste of it in this opening scene, when both of them get a little bit teary-eyed. It's interesting to note that Rico is not being reckless. She had actually thought ahead. She already knew that leaving would mean leaving everyone. She's not ignorant of this fact. She's just trying to emotionally put it behind her, and Nato's making it impossible for her to do that. We can't tell at this point, but this actually ends up being the first inkling that Nato is a little bit jealous of Reg. He's a little bit jealous of the attention Rico pays to him. He's jealous of her fascination with him, both as a high-grade relic and something associated with the Abyss, as well as a mystery that her curiosity can't let well enough alone. As brief as this scene is, it really sets up this episode to help us explore these characters a little bit more before they part. We get a few details as far as world building goes. There's another mention of the Seeker camp, which is obviously some sort of camp below. Last time it was mentioned there was a sentry there. That's where they got the letter and whistle from Liza. Mentioning it twice like this means it's going to come up again in the story. There's also this reiteration that going as far down as Rico wants to go means they can't come back. We explore this more thoroughly in a couple scenes, but I'm just starting to realize that the thing with the curse of the abyss, it doesn't punish you for going down, it punishes you for coming back up. To borrow my analogy is likening the abyss to the deeper parts of the ocean. Curse of the abyss sounds a lot like getting the bends. The problem that happens to divers if they resurface too quickly. The curse isn't about 
about going, it's about daring to return. Now thematically, that's gonna introduce something new. We'll talk about that later, but there's not enough substance in this scene. We do get one more look inside our little world of children. The children don't object to the feasibility of what Rico's on about. Really their big objection, or at least Nato's, is that they're gonna be separated from each other. There's a childish naivete into the notion that this will work at all, but also that their friendships and their relationships will persist the way they are. You really kind of feel that way as a child. You don't understand how different the world's going to be. You have no frame of reference. But of course, this plays back into the ever-present power of friendship, where even though what Rico is doing is highly against the rules, highly dangerous, there's no hesitation to share it and ask for help from the people around her. And there's no hesitation for them to just assume, well, yeah, of course we're going to help. Here's some advice also. A very nice scene to set up the rest of this episode. Our next scene involves Reg's first cave raid and lasts until they return. I had guessed last time that this cave raid would sort of initiate things, that new things would happen because of this. Narratively, I was basically wrong. But as far as our goals and themes, which really are kind of what drive a story, this scene is significant because it will be the reason that Reg throws his lot in with Rico. No progress at all on Reg remembering anything about himself. He even says as much. But holding the first relics he's discovered in his hand and sort of musing over things, he realizes the answer to all the questions he has have to be below. He essentially has come around to Rico's line of thinking, which is the only chance to know more about himself is to go into the abyss. No change to our big conflicts in the scene either. We get this growing tension between Nato and the group though, where he gets very upset at Reg for essentially agreeing with Rico as far as where the answers to their questions lie. And all that comes to a head in the next scene, but we'll get there. Characterization wise, we briefly get to hear Liza sort of narrating her own uh, diary entry. Although I think it's really Reg playing it over in his head. And it's interesting to know that Liza is once again being characterized kind of secondhand. Her notes reveal her to be a little bit amusing, curious, like her daughter. Not the most imaginative namer ever, but that kind of goes with being a scientist, I think. And that she's somewhat fearless. She describes some of these things in a very nonchalant manner. Rag displays that he's a bit of a ruminator. He likes to think over things and work them out in his head, as well as the fact that he can be frightened. And Nato, seeing that he can be afraid, shows a little bit of a mischievous side. Maybe this is because he's already feeling a little bit of jealousy towards Rag. But he decides to go all in and try to spook him with a little ghost story, urban legend about children and dying on their birthdays. Honestly, we've had a bigger range of emotion from Nato in these first few minutes than we have in the entire previous two episodes. It's clear Rico's desire to leave is stirring some things up in him. Ultimately, at the end of this episode, we get one last thing from Reg, which is that for him, the answers in the abyss are not just about his curiosity. It's not just about helping Rico out. It's actually tied to his sense of self. Who am I? So there's a ton of little role building in this scene. I'm not gonna go all into it. Liza's notebook contains descriptions of fantastical creatures, uh, iron rain, the fact that she's down to the fifth, sixth, and even seventh levels. She talks about that the silhouette, the thing that looks like Reg in her notes, didn't seem like a hollow. It's the first mention of that. We don't know what a hollow is yet, but I can't think of a single instance in which that description belongs to something good. Um, Reg and Nato have a little bit of a discussion during their excavating. We see these squishy, organic, kind of giant pitted olive things can also be relics, despite how organic they seem. We run into another skeleton posed in prayer, and Nato remarks that they're all from about 2,000 years ago. Now, if you remember, the abyss was discovered 1,900 years ago, and I have no idea how exact those dates are, but this clearly lends some credence to the idea that there was some civilization that suddenly stopped. Finally, at the end of the scene, we get sort of the confirmation that the whole Curse of the Abyss thing is only on the ascent. Nato is perfectly fine while they're down there interacting and sort of busting Reg's chops. It's only coming back that he gets very nauseous, very sweaty, very run down. And of course, we get to confirm that Reg is completely unaffected. So thematically, we added this thing last time about the truth being buried, the truth needs to be excavated, dug up, truth needs to be uncovered. When Reg's sort of musing about the relic and his own origin, he straight up says, 
Answers lie waiting at the bottom of the netherworld. He even says it's the one thing he wants to believe in. We don't have the full picture, of course, but this whole idea of the abyss as some sort of inscrutable bastion of truth or wisdom or some kind of knowledge is really starting to get colored in. And then, of course, there's who am I? versus what I do. Reg has now tied his own sense of self to what he discovers in the abyss. I said last time he would probably be one of the embodiments of this theme along with Liza. It's probably no coincidence that he seems to have her notes memorized and is ruminating over them while he does this stuff. The two are sort of thematically linked, if not also linked in their own goals. So our next scene is about the actual plot to leave, Rico deciding to leave the next day, Reg deciding he's gonna go with her, Nato strongly objecting, and Shiggy being helpful like always. Goal-wise, Reg and Rico are now kind of officially united. They're both gonna go down. They both have the same destination. The map that Shiggy sort of busts out to show us actually gives us sort of goalposts. We now have a sense of what progress down at the abyss looks like, how many layers there are, what sort of things to expect in each layer. We get a little bit yardstick of miniature goals that are gonna help us judge our progress as the show goes on, assuming it's about them trying to get to the bottom. We definitely get new conflicts out of the scene. Shiggy's description of the map shows us that the second level is difficult enough that any red whistles, which means them, that go into this zone will not be rescued. No one's gonna come after them. So much so that it's considered suicide, literally suicide for a red whistle to go to that level. They're literally trying to die, no reason to help them. There's actually a new sort of background conflict, and it's hard to tell how far reaching this will be, but apparently in addition to everything else going on in the abyss, it can also cause you to go crazy. Who knows who all that's affected? Who knows how much that's changed our actual knowledge of what's down there? Finally, Nato's degrading emotional state sort of boils over. He can't stand that Rico's leaving. He can't stand that Reg's going with her. And in the state, he puts to words the thing we've all kind of been thinking, which is that the whistle coming back means Liza's dead. That's kind of a terrible thing to say from a place of emotion. Now, this fight gives this whole episode sort of emotional tension. The conflict ends up being confined mostly to the single episode, but it does bring up a new sort of conflict problem with our goal, which is that Liza really might be dead. His main goal may be unreachable. There may be a lot of things she does and choices she makes based on a false premise. The fact that she doesn't want to believe this and reacts the way she does to anyone who brings it up may be a source of conflict that they're gonna carry with them. Characterization-wise, obviously, Nato's sort of building emotional instability boils over here. Really, even though it was terrible to say the thing about Rico's mother from a place of emotion, if she hasn't really considered this option, he's actually being a friend by bringing it up. Like, disabusing someone of their delusions is something friends do. There's also a noticeable change in what we've come to expect from Reg. It's actually put to voice by Shiggy. After Reg says that he's going with Rico, Shiggy says, I was sure you'd be on the side of trying to stop her. Which just means that we know Reg has been sort of pragmatic. This is not a careful, reasonable course of action, but it's clear to us now that his curiosity curiosity, his own sense of self, has overridden his pragmatism. It's overridden his sense of caution. We now know which instinct is stronger in him. Now, world-building-wise, there's a ton about the actual abyss, the details. I'm not going to run through it all. It's just fascinating to see how many things there are to expect, how very bizarre the abyss is, and it lays out where you can expect people to go. Most interesting, sort of the fifth and sixth levels, this is a white whistle-only territory. Black whistles don't go any lower than fourth. And the consequence of returning from the sixth level is so severe that apparently you can't. So if a white whistle ever decides they're going to the sixth layer, they go ahead and call it their last dive. Previous episode referred to Liza's last dive, and now we know what it is. Apparently people knew she was going to that lair, and I guess at that point, trying to ascend simply kills you. So if you go to the sixth layer, you're committed to staying in the abyss for the rest of your life. Only really other interesting little detail we get here is about the mail balloons. We'd seen shots of them before without knowing what they were, but apparently the postmaster general for the abyss is hot air balloons. This may seem like an unreliable system. Luckily, they had cop to that. They say how hard it is to get messages up from the bottom of the abyss. 
It seems there's even a problem with validity, and the whole fact that the abyss can cause you to go crazy means your whistle rank is not just how far down you go, it's how trustworthy your information is. And past a certain point, they only believe what you're saying if you're a white whistle. Theme-wise, I only want to reiterate that last point about the white whistle's messages being truth. It's pointed out that even if a white whistle dies, they live on as a voice of the abyss guiding others. It seems White Whistle's value is not just in the relics that they uncover, but in the truth that they discover and share with those who could never go as far, who could never discover the truth for themselves. Also have a little more of our little power friendship. Shigi risks punishment by sneaking into the director's office to steal the map because he knows his friend is reckless and he's still gonna do his best to help her out. Reg's own curiosity is sort of mixed with a desire to sort of protect Rico. And Nato, despite the consequence, brings up that Liza might be dead, that this might be the truth, something Rico needs to face sooner rather than later. This next scene involves our orphans actually sneaking out, actually beginning their journey. This is obviously the next minor step in the goal of getting to the abyss, and they manage it without being caught by a leader. Talk more about that in a second. Conflict-wise, the fear of authorities here might be over. Don't know exactly where the story's going from here, but if it only focuses on Reg and Rico, this ends the conflict of director and leader maybe stopping them in their tracks. However, maybe that's not how the story narrows, because we have this bit where Reg is saying goodbye to Kiwi, who volunteers the information that his birthday is in a few days. Now Reg remembers a little story Nato told him and gives him some advice. Don't look in the mirror. Don't trigger the curse. But mentioning it twice like this makes me think maybe there's something to this story. Maybe children dying on their birthdays is some new background conflict that we're just starting to get teased out. It's too early to say, but teasing information out like that is usually not an accident. Most of the rest of the scene is really characterization. Despite choosing Rico's sort of reckless path, Reg is still sort of the voice of reason sort of talks Rico down about how she's feeling toward Nato, the need to apologize, the need not to leave things like this. And it shows that Rico is receptive to this stuff, that she's not so stubborn that she can't be talked out of emotions she's feeling strongly. We also learn that Reg's a little sentimental. He goes and tracks down Nato, potentially to try to apologize, but also to say goodbye, and then goes and talks to Kiwi, also to say goodbye. One of the things he says to Kiwi, though, is grow up nice and strong, which makes me believe Reg doesn't think he's ever coming back, that he thinks this is goodbye, that he's giving him life advice. When Reg is sort of caught outside the door by Leader, he's sort of inventive in a pinch. He gives the explanation of going to the bathroom and then explains Rico's absence away in the same way and then doubles down to say she's got the runs. I don't think this is necessarily being played for humor. I think Reg knows that that's a taboo enough thing that Leader's not gonna bust up in the toilet and make sure she's actually doing that, you know? He's heading Leader's investigation off of the past by giving him a reasonable explanation that he's not going to investigate further. Finally though, I don't think Leader is fooled. He says to Rig, stay with her and make sure she's okay. Ostensibly they're still having a conversation about going to the toilet, but it actually makes more sense if you think Leader knows they're leaving, knows they're going together, wants Reg to watch over her. Probably even realizes Reg's a little bit special. So I've broken the rest of this episode into just two scenes. One's the actual traveling to the little wharf, and then making the goodbye scene its own little scene. Nato is their guide, and he reveals some of his own back history, the fact that he comes from here. And finally, for the first time in the series, Nato has a goal of his own. He wants to come back to this district and open an orphanage there. He essentially wants to pay it forward to the fact that he was taken in off the streets, and he knows so many children here are not that lucky. This would technically go under world building. This indicates that as bad as their orphanage situation may be, it's obviously very preferable to the fate of some of the children in the city. Conflict-wise, the tiffy between Nato and Rico is resolved. Sort of a fantastic way, honestly. We'll go ahead and talk about how this characterizes them, because Nato is surprised at how quickly Rico assents to forgiving him. He's absolutely expecting her to be stubborn about it. He's not expecting an apology. He apologizes anyway. That's important to his character, I think. Despite the whole fight they had, he comes along to help. He's not expecting her to forgive him, which is why he disguises himself, but he wasn't gonna let that stop him. Now, his expectation that Rico is gonna be stubborn about the whole thing tells us that Rico is changing also, that she's maybe a little 
little bit more grown up than they were expecting, realizes how important it is to forgive him, and does so without question. Maybe this is just a change in perspective for Rico, thanks to Liza's letter, thanks to her new accelerated goal, but it may also be due to Reg's influence. Nato then sort of tells his own story about how he came to be at the orphanage, how he grew up in this district, and we realize that no one here knows this story, that he's kept his past secret. However, it's the same story that he gave Reg to tell Leader as his own backstory. This actually sort of characterizes Leader a little bit, because I have to assume that Leader had already heard the story. He, he already knew it was Nato's story, which may be what tipped him off to the idea that Reg might not be exactly what he looks like. The fact that Leader had never called anyone on this, I think is telling. World building wise, I already mentioned what we learned about the wharf and the people who live there. We also discover that Reg apparently has a good sense of smell. He recognizes Nato immediately based on his smell. This seems like one of those tiny details that might come into play later. We learn a little bit more about mail balloons and their unreliability. We get Rico's hypothesis about her mother sending tons up and putting the little notes in all of them. We learn the wharf district was actually founded by people who raid illegally. So that tells us that that is in fact a thing. I was wondering about that last time, but clearly access to the abyss is not so controlled that you couldn't keep foreigners out of there because apparently you won't be able to keep a couple of 12 year olds out of there, but also there's some sort of toxins and garbage or other kind of hazardous conditions that cause people to be sick and die. This is a legitimately dangerous and depressive sort of area that people live their whole lives in. Finally, thematically, power friendship is all over this episode, and I already mentioned it, but Nato was not going to let their Tiffy get in the way of him helping them out. Maybe he wouldn't normally help someone out that he's having a fight with, but he didn't come with any expectation that they'd know who he was. He didn't have any expectation that he'd get to say goodbye, but he was still going to provide the service that they were relying on him for. Finally, our final scene is an appropriately dramatic send-off as Rico and Reg do in fact make their way into the abyss. Our whole first three episodes have been setting up to this moment, honestly, so I like that they took the time to give this moment the sense of importance that it really deserves. And the sense of drama, of course. Goal-wise, obviously, they're off. They did it. They left the surface by themselves. For all we know, they're stopped 30 feet down, but at least they got started. That said, we get a couple of new little minor goals. One is that Rico wants to send letters back. She wants to send letters and souvenirs. She wants to communicate with the service. She doesn't want this to be just a one-way goodbye forever. We'll see if she remembers that goal or is able to fulfill it. It'll be an interesting thing to help us track progress and help us gauge if the whole thing is going to plan or not. We do have a new goal that may not be realized at all, but we'll see. And that is that Nato's emotional instability has a pretty easy explanation. He likes Rico. Like, like that. And he wants to tell her how he feels. He never thought it would come up like this. So Nato has a goal. He wants to tell Rico how he feels. He definitely doesn't get to meet that goal in this scene. Now we don't know where the series is going from here. We may never see Nato again. We'll go ahead and add it one of these little minor goals. Every character is more interesting to us and easier to understand when we know of some sort of goal they have. Nato now has two. However, dot dot dot, that gives us a new conflict because Nato's unconfessed and potentially unrequited feelings may cause him to behave in a reckless manner in the future. We've already seen how out of character he's been this whole episode. This could very well be setting us up for him doing something a little bit desperate, a little bit dangerous in the future, assuming he's in the series at all from now on. Characterization wise, all about Nato here. He's probably been carrying a flame for Rico for a long time. It's probably part of the reason he puts up with her. His behavior towards Reg, his jealousy, all makes sense now. Rico's tough exterior finally breaks down and she's a weepy, sobby mess, but it doesn't deter her. She was never gonna step aside. Whatever else you can say about Rico, she knows what she wants. World building wise, not much other than there's something in Reg's pack, something he didn't put there. It got no focus. We know it'll be important. We just don't know what it is yet. And finally, thematically, we have this fantastic shot where Rico and Reg descend literally into darkness. They literally pass out of our vision, out of our knowledge, into the unknown, the unseeable, the inscrutable. If the abyss is representative of truth, among other things, then this idea of stepping into the unknown to discover it is extremely consistent with that theme. During her goodbye with Nato, Rico talks about how they'll still be connected by the abyss. 
How no matter what else happens, the abyss connects them. It may not be just a mover of fate, but a connector of fate. I suggested before that Maiden Abyss may refer to all the characters, and if the abyss contains and represents some yet as unknown truth, the significance of the abyss may be more far-reaching than we yet understand. All right, so let's talk about our five things sort of the episode overall. I realize I have not filled this out as I've been going like I've been doing. I realize that kind of halfway through. I gotta go to work soon. I can't do this now. I'll come back later, fill it out, add it to the shots later. Goal-wise, obviously the biggest first step of all, as far as Liza finding her mother, as far as Reg finding out more about himself, the fact that their goals are now combined in going into the abyss, discovering everything they can. For now, their paths are together. We'll see if that lasts. We got two new goals for Nato. He wants to start an orphanage there on the surface, and he wants to confess his feelings to Rico. There's an obvious problem there where Rico wants to go below, doesn't mind staying in the abyss and never coming up, and Nato's goal means he has to stay on the surface. The fact that he loves her, in fact, means that both of his goals are not attainable. As far as our conflicts go, almost no advancement at all in what we have written up here, other than leader's behavior indicates to me that I don't think he's going to be a problem. I don't think he will be coming after them or otherwise interfering. How authority in general handles this, we'll see. I'm sure the fact that they've gone below will get out. So that's the surface concern. There's also the new concern about the birthday deaths. Again, we'll see if that's nothing but a rumor. But bringing it up twice like that means it's something we need to be worried about, thinking about. It might come back. Most of our new conflicts are now not above Reg and Rico, but below. There's the fact that they'll be given up for dead if they make it to the second level. There's the fact that in addition to everything else, the abyss causes madness. Probably not to Reg, but maybe to Rico, which will be just as bad. And there's also our Seeker camp that's been mentioned a few times. The fact that there are sentries there to me indicates that it is probably some sort of installation that keeps unauthorized people out of the abyss, or at least part of the abyss. And it seems likely this will be an additional barrier to Rico and Reg as they try to venture down. A lot of great characterization in this episode, although we really kind of went all through it, realizing that all these characters have a little more emotional complexity to them, makes them more endearing, makes them more interesting, makes us want to root for them more. Rico's general recklessness is a little more endearing now instead of just annoying. Nato is way more colored in. Honestly thought that Reg was just going to supplant him entirely as the voice of reason, because that's the only thing we really saw from Nato up until this point. I really think it'll be a shame if this is the last we see of Nato. And again, I think Leader is wise what's going on and letting it happen for his own reasons. The big world-building additions here is all the information we found out about the Abyss and the various levels, and the fact that ascending seems to be the only problem with the Curse of the Abyss. That's not confirmed in-universe yet, but that seems to be the case, considering how many times they mention it only in that context. This especially jives the idea that the sixth layer and below is the last dive, that you can never come back, and the fact that apparently White Whistles in the past have been okay with this. These are the kind of people who are okay with a suicide mission, apparently, or at the very least are willing to give up their surface life for a life in the Abyss. Lastly is sort of the mail balloon system. The fact of knowledge and information coming up from the Abyss being treated differently depending on who it's coming from. I mean, that actually seems like reasonable skepticism, but I have a feeling this will probably come into play. There's probably some true information that has been disregarded because it came from a source people thought was crazy. Alternatively, things assumed to be true that have come from White Whistles who actually turned out to be crazy. Finally, in theme, we mentioned this earlier, but this whole idea of White Whistles representing the people who can go down to the Abyss and send back sort of the secret knowledge that will be believed, that they become the voices of the Abyss even in death, seems like it has a lot of potential to be metaphoric. It almost sounds like spiritual leaders or spiritual guides, or even people who believe they can cross over into death or who have died and are sending information back that you couldn't get to otherwise, like learning wisdom from your dead ancestors or something. I mean, we're definitely still sort of filling in the details about what the abyss will mean, but I've mentioned that throughout this episode. I'm not going to go back over it. Just my belief that the abyss would eventually be this grand symbol for many themes is starting to bear fruit. So then what are we watching for in the future? The thing I'm most curious about right this moment is, will there be an A plot, B plot? That is to say, the A plot to me, Rico and Rig, they're going below. We're going to follow their attempts to find out about Reg and to 
fine about Eliza. That's the A plot. It might be the only plot, and a lot about the show sort of suggests that to me, but I wonder if there's gonna be a B plot. That is to say, if we're going to continue to see what's going on on the surface, if there's gonna be some sort of extra plot going on that might actually intersect or interfere with our A plot. I suggested last episode that I believed our cast would narrow, that Reg and Rico at least would continue going forward, but we might lose everybody else. And that may still be the case, but all the extra characterization we got for Nato this episode, giving him not one, but two goals, the mention of sort of the birthday deaths and the fact that Kiwi's birthday is coming up soon. This all seems like somewhat extraneous information if we're never gonna see these characters again, or at least we're not gonna see them until way at the end. So the immediate thing I wanna know is, is there gonna be a B plot? Now there could still be a B plot, even if it doesn't show up in the next episode, but if we get a couple episodes out and it's still just the Rico and Reg descending show, and that means we're probably done with the surface unless they all come back. So whatever in Reg's backpack is gonna be important. We may not even know who put it there, other than it obviously wasn't Reg since he was surprised by it, but you don't secretly give someone who's descending into the abyss something unless it's important. We're gonna rapidly need to find out more information about some of the things that have been mentioned, if for no other reason that it gives the story a little bit of sense of progress and sense of structure. This means things like the secret camp need to be filled in soon. The sixth and seventh levels that are very mysterious are gonna need to be filled in by someone so we have a sense of what we're heading toward. If not details, then at least the allure of why people are drawn down there, if it means they can never come back. I'm sure Rico brought the star compass with her. We should be expecting that to come into play at some opportune moment. We're also gonna need information about sort of the silhouette, this thing in Liza's notebook. Reg seems to be assuming that it's someone like him, but not him. So we ought to be looking to see if we run into anyone else like Reg at all, or if he really is singular. All right, so let's do a little bit of speculation. I suspect we're gonna immediately meet someone new, especially if we only have the A plot going forward. If I had to guess, I think it's gonna be the little bunny girl that shows up in the opening. She's all over the ending too. I know we didn't talk about it, but she's all over the ending. I don't know if she's gonna fulfill what I just talked about, which is meeting someone kind of like Reg or not, but I really just don't think the story works if it's just Reg and Rico. I think you need one more personality in there for them to sort of pivot around. Um, I'm speculating that the whole birthday deaths thing has a real thing, that there might be one more layer of darkness going on here, that this may be related to the sort of inscrutable nature of the abyss, the weird things kind of going on, the geopolitical situation that our children don't understand at all, the timing of Liza's letter and all that coming up. I feel there's a really good chance this is all related. I'm predicting some of the information we know about the abyss at this point turns out to be false. Playing with the idea about true and false information gives me that impression. I think the two cave raiders we see in the opening that we haven't met yet might end up being sort of down there illegally. I'm almost positive they're gonna be antagonistic to Reg and Rico. And finally, sort of the big one, is Liza alive or not? I'm gonna be honest. They're doing a good job of making me guess. There's pretty good reason to believe it can go both ways. That against all odds, this greatest of all white whistles is down below, can't come up because of the curse, used her whistle to send a message up to have her daughter come after her or someone come after her, maybe even Reg. But I can also see her the pursuit of this goal that's unattainable, maybe sort of a thematic thing in the series. And we may end up with a lot of goals that don't go met. Habo might never get to a white whistle. Nato might never get to open his orphanage or may never get to confess. Reg may never find out why he was made. And then of course, Rico may never get to Liza. This may be a pattern. We'll probably learn some more goals of the new people we're going to meet. Ultimately, I think whether she's alive or not kind of comes down to tone. And where we're sitting right now at the end of the third episode, I don't know exactly what the tone of the series will be. It's been mostly light and hopeful with a little undercurrent of things not being quite right, but you need a little bit of tension and conflict anyway. That said, there's a lot of imagery full of darkness, things that are malformed or grotesque, the obvious sort of seedy underbelly of the city and maybe the government's involved. There's a lot of darkness here and I don't yet know where the tone's gonna take us. But the best way to find that out is to go on to the next episode, episode four. See you there. Okay, wait, before we actually go on to the next one, I did go back and fill all this out. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah. But I do have one last bit of speculation. I totally can't believe I forgot about it. So now that we're going with the assumption that the Curse of the Abyss only affects you on the ascent, we can make some guesses about the nature of it. Now I made the analogy earlier that it sounds a little bit like when divers get the bends, which is when they ascend from the depths too quickly. And there's also a different affliction called altitude sickness, which affects you when you go up mountains too fast or are otherwise sort of unaccustomed to alpine climate. Now these are both afflictions that affect people in real life. And just like the Curse of the Abyss, they only affect you on the ascent. They only affect you going up. But the curse is not like these other two in a very important way, and that difference gives us a little bit of a clue. Now, everything we know about the curse likens its intensity to its depth. That is, the effects aren't related to how fast you go down or how fast you come up or how long you stay down there. They only relate to how far down you go. The curse is stronger the deeper you are. Different people seem to be more or less affected by it, and I guess you can sort of get used to it, but the most important thing as far as the side effects is the depth. Or to put it another way, the closer you are to the bottom, the stronger the effect. Like the same way a bonfire gets hotter and hotter as you walk closer to it. So I think it's reasonable to guess that whatever causes the curse of the abyss is something that radiates up from the bottom. Now combine that idea with the other clues we have about what the abyss is. It's full of relics, which are more technologically advanced than what's available in the whole rest of the world. The cliffs are full of 2,000-year-old skeletons indicating some ancient pre-existing civilization. There are structures built way below what makes sense given the Curse of the Abyss and its effects. And finally, that it's full of flora and fauna that are found nowhere else in the world. Given all that, the curse starts to sound like it's either an intentional barrier or a tremendous accident. Now maybe it is an accident, maybe that civilization had some sort of tech go haywire and accidentally make their civilization become uninhabitable, maybe a little bit like Chernobyl, and something like that might explain sort of the weird animals and plants. The only problem with that as a direct analogy though is what I mentioned in the beginning, that it's only the ascent that seems to matter. Getting closer to the source doesn't seem to bother you, it's only leaving that's a problem. Basically the opposite of radioactive fallout. Instead it sounds way more like detox. It's almost as though descending into the abyss imbues you with some sort of quality or substance, and you get more of the whatever the deeper you go. Then when you leave and it starts to exit your system, you start to get adverse effects. Heck, the symptoms from the first layer sound an awful lot like being drunk or hungover, and alcohol is one of those drugs that if you consume enough of it, but stop suddenly, it can kill you. So if it's not an accidental fallout situation, but rather sort of intentional, could it then actually be a barrier of some kind? For example, it could have been meant to trap a people at the bottom forever. Escaping upwards would always be fatal. This could have been something carried out against an existing civilization, or it could have been designed that way from the beginning, like some kind of super jail. But a barrier could also work in reverse, not keeping people in, but keeping them out. The curse could actually just be a deterrent to outsiders, they would start to suffer the adverse effects uh, early on as kind of a warning shot, but after a certain point, they will never return. This seems like a perfectly effective way to shut yourself off from the rest of the world. Maybe they wanted the seclusion, maybe it was a defense against an aggressor, or maybe some cataclysm befell the wider world and this was actually their defense against it. It could also be a sort of preservative effect. Now I'd supposed before that we might actually find like an existing civilization or peoples that are living down there. And it may be that they uncovered or invented some kind of limited form of immortality, but one that only works if you stay in range of this effect. You start to have detox-like symptoms from it, which if you've been exposed to enough of it, will be fatal. Okay, so that is a lot of guesses. 
we don't have enough information right now to determine which, if any of these, hold water. And it made up being sort of a combination of things, like it actually was meant as a shield, but had unintended side effects, like killing their population that lived in the upper levels, or people who tried to leave and they didn't know it was going to be fatal, and that's where all those skeletons come from. And that would be terribly tragic. Or it could be something completely different, like a portal to another world, or another time, and that's what explains all the different plants and animals. Or I'm completely wrong about everything, and I'm wasting your time, and I'm wasting my time. But I really like speculating. I'm gonna keep doing it, and hopefully I get a little less wrong every week. I hope. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.